We are surrounded by incredibly strong people. Their journeys, like us all, are full of resilience, persistence, inner strength, and an ability to gain perspective to make the best of what is thrown our way. This is People Are Amazing, the podcast. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you had a wonderful break from the treacherous year that was and going into 2021 with a clear and positive headspace. I definitely needed the reset. My first guest this year is yet another person who embodies resilience and inner strength. Having had a tough upbringing and time in prison, it wasn't until he got into a car accident in his early 20s that left him a paraplegic where his life turned around. The next 35 years saw him travel all over the globe with a wall of trophies to Trump, playing a myriad of sports representing Australia and the Collingwood AFL wheelchair team captain. Even getting cancer hasn't weaned his spirit. He is jovial, a big conversationalist, a man with an incredible perspective and zest for life using humour as his biggest tool and charm. This is Brendan Strode's story. Hey, Brendan. Hi, how are you? Because <laughs> um, I had the PET scan earlier this morning. What's the scans like? Are you in like a, an MRI type of machine almost every time? Yeah, yeah. It, so it's that, just that tunnel thing. So yeah. I'm fine with that. It's just more lying my back for a certain amount of time because of the injury I've had uh, from the accidents. It's really excruciating. So the last time I had it, I was only able to lie on my back for about five minutes and so this time I actually took, because I'm on uh, medicinal um, marijuana, so uh, the medical stuff. So that certainly helped calm me down a bit as well uh, through that. So instead of lying on my back, I can lie on my side and stuff. So they can still pick up the the cancer traces and all sorts of stuff as well, So which is good. To, How yeah. long are you in there at any given time? So it takes about two, hour, two hours, the whole process. So when they give you the injection of the radiation dye or whatever it is, uh, it takes about an hour for that to circulate, approximately about 20 to 35 minutes for the actual scan and stuff as well. So all over, it's about two hours. Well, look, thank you for joining me and, you know, coming on the podcast. You're quite a celebrity already, so I feel like I'm a bit starstruck reading all the stuff that I've found about you. Um, But, yeah, really privileged to have you on and keen to get to know you and, you know, your experience. Podcast is is really around how amazing people are in terms of their resilience and the inner strength to be able to work through a lot of their life adversities. And, you know, you have suffered quite a lot but you're also such a positive person. So how about you kick us off? Tell us your name, where you're from, how old are you? Yeah, my name's Brendan Stroud. Um, I'm in Mentone, living in Mentone for the last six months and Australian born, in my 50s now, balding through age, sadly. So obviously you can't see, I am in a wheelchair, so I'm a paraplegic and uh, had a car accident when I was 22, but we can talk about that a little bit more later. So, so that's probably me in my nutshell growing up and in the 60s I was born, so... Lived in North Melbourne, then moved to Moorabbin, then moved to Hampton, and um, then I was on the streets for a little bit, then uh, moved to Mornington and um, had a car accident and uh, done a lot of great things since then. So, well, I think they're great, so, uh, which is good. So, they're weirdly good. Uh, sorry, yeah, bad wheelchair jokes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you were homeless for a little while? Around 15 years old when I uh, was on the streets. And there's obviously a lot of backstory to that. So I started off going to a Catholic school. So I used to walk home from the Catholic school to my place, obviously, in grade four then. And I was going past this other school, which was just a normal public school, and going past there, and you get all these names, you get spat on, you get kicked on. Hey, you're Catholic. 
and all this sort of stuff. And so a lot of mental abuse. So most of the time I'd run across the street. Then coming up my street, the older kids who lived across the road were uh, a few years older than me. And uh, sometimes a couple of weeks I'd get beaten up by those guys. And so there's always constant bullying and stuff that I went through as a that young kid, as in grade four and that sort of stuff. So actually, once I actually left the Catholic school, I went to the same school that I got picked on in grade five. So it wasn't that bad. Uh, all the bullying stopped because I left that school and things. And but I was still getting beaten up by the older kids uh, who lived across the road from us. And I was about nine uh, then, and um, sadly, uh, mum and dad didn't get on. Dad was abusive, quite abusive to me and things, and um, physical, uh, sadly. And uh, um, I'd come in crying from the backyard once, and mum was there. She was at her wit's end, basically, with dad and stuff. And uh, I know she didn't mean this, and we spoke about this later when she was uh, when I was older. And um, she just shoved me out of the way, and sadly, I stumbled against the window and fell through the window through that. And uh, the next morning, um, I never saw her again from that time on for a few years, anyway. So at nine years old, I'm thinking she's left because of me, but she left with my older sister and my youngest sister, and um, just obviously couldn't handle dad anymore and stuff. And maybe I just tipped her over the edge coming in there and seeing that and I don't blame mum I apologise years later but uh, when I caught up with her so yeah there was that two mile of being a nine year old thinking my mum's left because of me coming in there and never seeing her again for a few years and stuff but so we uh, sort of sat in front of the rest of us kids so I was family of six uh, the rest of us kids sat in front of dad and said hey do you, who do you want to live with me or your mum's we didn't want to go and go against dad's wishes because of obviously we didn't want any abuse from that sort of thing. So terrifiedly we said with you. So I stayed with dad for a little bit. Still getting abuse by the kids across the road, which dad didn't really intervene when we did my older brother, so which was sad. So we decided my grandmother was living in Hampton, which was not far from Arab where we were living at that particular point. And we ended up moving into Nana's house, which was was great. So there was no bullying or getting beaten up throughout the week anymore. So we found out where mum was living. Dad had stopped us seeing the letters that mum was writing. And so we didn't. We thought mum didn't care about us or anything, didn't want to know about us. And But that was dad keeping mum away from us, basically. And we didn't find out until a few years later. My older sister, Margaret, she got in contact with mum and finding out where she lived and stuff. So I was around 15 at that particular point. My second elder sister, Maura, she moved up to Mornington where mum and her new husband and my little sister were living and his kids, but I didn't have the opportunity to go straight away. So when my sister left the night after, I had to leave because uh, I basically felt that something was going to happen as soon as Dad found out that we were going to move up to Mum's and stuff. I thought the shit's going to hit the fan, basically. So so I left around probably about 11 o'clock that night and just virtually ran out the door with my bike and uh, a backpack. It's on a... Lived on some friends' couches for a little bit, then found myself down at St Kilda, mixing with a few people, then got into drugs and alcohol, and I was down there for quite some time. Probably about nine months all up, uh, I was on the streets for that, that little period, so I didn't know exactly where mum was living and didn't know how to get in contact her properly, and, and I did remember that she was in Mornington somewhere, and that's all, and something to do with cigarettes, <laughs> uh, where she was working, which ended up being Philip Morris in Cheltenham, so... I ended up finding contact through that way after about nine months. And as soon as I got in contact, moved up to Mornington where 
I moved in with them and life got a hell of a lot better for me in ways with obviously without the abuse from dad and uh, having to live on the street, all of the drugs and stuff that I was introduced to. And I wanted to keep on the straight and narrow and I wanted to get back into sport, playing football. So I did boxing, kickboxing, football, cricket, taekwondo before my accident and sport certainly saved me after the accident. And we hear this all the time. Around 16, my stepfather, mum's second husband was a, a boxer and a kickboxer. So he taught me how to defend myself and things like that. And that was a good thing and also a bad thing. So not that I went out looking for fights or anything like that. Defend the younger kids and I got charged for assaults and stuff like that. It's still violence and it's not a good thing to look back into. You know, I did all this and hang around the wrong people who then you get picked up by the cops. And I spent time in a youth detention centre. So I also spent some time in Pentridge uh, as well when I was an adult. I always remembered every time I was out of relationship is when I got into trouble. So I got back into the same sort of circle of friends that I was mucking around with. And um, so I didn't have anything that was sort of like stable, like a, a mother type of role or type of thing. So we look, well, I look at relationships uh, like what we get off our mum and dad in certain sort of ways to feel that comfort. So I didn't have that sort of relationship ties and things. So I just went out and did stupid stuff again. I was still I was smoking dope back then and I was on speed a fair bit as well. So so yeah, I was still getting into trouble and making mucking around with the wrong friends when I was out of a relationship. And I remember the judge, I think I was um I was about 19 uh, that stage. Obviously, there's a lot of stories about going to Pentridge and things like that. But the judge at Mornington said to me, the next time I see you here, I'm going to give you five years jail. And I've gone, shit, that's a long time. In my head. And, and that's when I thought to myself, okay, I need to get into a, a nice relationship and settle down and get myself into on the straight and narrow. And I found this lovely woman that I met. We obviously got together and things like that. We've got a child. He's not child now it's uh, he's in his 30s so so but we split up when i was 22 so january that year 86 i'll go for it and people can figure out my age uh so we split up around january february in 86 and my life was going all right i was in tasmania on a working holiday i was there for about three days in that three days i had about six hours sleep so i did my job was out having fun i was 22 came back to mornington where i was living that night I was out with my sister and friends and had to, I was designated driver. I had to drop those guys off at home and I had a quick gym band and coke probably about four o'clock in the morning and I, was, I knew I was shit tired. So I dropped my sister and friends off. So they were out of the car. If anyone knows Mornington, I, I was coming down Mornington, uh, Tyab Road in Mornington, approaching Stumpy Gully Road around four o'clock in the morning. I was winding down the window, turning the radio, trying to wake myself up and you know, just decided to fall asleep. And I wasn't wearing a seatbelt, sadly. Uh, obviously seatbelts to save lives and the old car type it was it was a old galant so it was a big metal box basically so so i fell asleep forward they estimated i was doing between 140 to 160 k's an hour uh, so i fell asleep forward my foot went down accelerator drifted into the road clipped the lamppost then cartwheeled the car and, and then got thrown out the windscreen and basically be able to see a faint scar going across my face here then i've got massive scars in my head from going through the windscreen my head was peeled back like an orange uh, so they found me about 10, 15 metres in front of the car. Um, I broke my back completely around belly button level, which is around T9 level, and also an incomplete break of my neck around C6, C7 level. So I was lucky I didn't break the neck fully and end up a permanent quad. So someone found me and obviously got an ambulance and got taken to the Austin Hospital and then went to ICU for about three and a half, four weeks there. So there started my life as a journey of a, as a paraplegic. So This is your nutshell. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it is pretty much, and it was weird because I was born Brendan Stroud, but when I moved up to my mum's, second husband was named Whelan. So I was lying in the Austin Hospital, lying on my back, thinking, Whelan, how many puns am I going to get from this wheelchair? So I decided, shit, I need to change back to my birth name. So I got to the, the one of the nurses to start the ball rolling of changing my uh, my name back to my birth name because there's no way I wanted to be <laughs> wheel and wheels and all sorts of stuff. Well, there's too many puns. I, I use them bad enough just what I'm doing. So if I had to stay wheel so it was a uh, complicated, but I had to be, I had to get done. So I just couldn't stay wheel anymore. So yeah. I remember being in part of the uh, the 3KZ building at the Austin Hospital. I was, I was in and out of consciousness and on and off morphine drip, and which was quite high, high dosage. And I remember one of the nurses saying that should be better turn down his morphine. He's tripping a bit. So I was dreaming on. I was on the bottom of the uh, Able Tasman, which is the spirit of Tasmania. Now we have these big ventilation system on, and just apparently screaming and all sort of stuff. So I was in the Austin Hospital probably for about six months. Then I moved into a hostel by myself. So I didn't really have anybody else close family and friends to, to live with and all sorts of stuff. So, so I was sort of alone from that point on anyway. So yes, I did have family in a way, but no really close friends that sort of stuck by me because I couldn't do the stuff that I used to as well. So, How old were you when you had the accident? 22. Mm. And where was your mum? Mum was living in Mafra at that particular time. So dad was in Hampton. So I was already, uh, we'd already separated from mums. There's a lot of stories to go in there. So I was pretty much living with my eldest sister. Sadly, mum's second husband and my sister also got together as well. And uh, like she was 18 and he was practically grooming her from day one from when she moved up from her birth dads. So there was a lot of sexual activity from her. So that's what blew up the whole family. So my second elder sister she's only a year and a half older than me so around 17 when she moved up to Mornington and perfect for a groomer I guess in that way and we all blamed my sister for a while for I guess not being strong enough to say no but obviously hindsight's always a a beautiful thing and stuff and like I've forgiven her and everything that happened I don't blame her for that sort of stuff it's more him Uh, he was a 40 year old man known better obviously and he wanted to have a relationship as well and mum said no obviously so he was sort of like I said, he, he passed away now so it wasn't a good thing so it's definitely his fault yeah terrible to go through and uh see her go through that and obviously the family gets separated for, for that as well so he had four kids of his own and so having to sort that all as well because him and uh, my sister moved out together and let, he left his kids with us which were all around our age having to get at work and help out with finances and stuff at uh, that age was, was hard as well. So. so post your car accident, so you were 22, thrown out the window, you spent six months in hospital and then you moved into a hostel and that was the beginning mm. of your new life or the new chapter. Life. Yeah. Yes. So how mm. did you adjust in terms of not being able to, I mean, most of your friends were mobile, they were doing things that were slightly mm. different to what you could do from a mobility perspective. How did things start to shift for you? How did you change your mentality and, you know, kind of move forward and realise this is going to be me now? How do I own this? Yeah, I think you start to own it, obviously, because you go into rehab. And so once I got sent to the, the hostel or moved into the hostel while I was getting, waiting for a housing commission place to be fixed up in Brangston, 
I guess the mentality was quite hard to realise that shit, I'm never going to walk again and things like that because the doctors, I don't remember the doctors saying to me, you're never going to walk again. They they did tell me that I had a crushed spine and my wacky sense of humour said, well, can't you take it out and iron it and do something like that and yeah, shove a vital organ back into your back so it will be fine. So put some preen on it and it'll be fine. But that was most my mentality and they never laughed and <laughs> I found out years later why, but anyway, because it wasn't funny. Um, so yeah, I moved into this hostel and I was there probably for probably say close to three or four months. So I had a little room by myself. There was other paraplegics and quadriplegics there as well. Some of them had support, obviously, depending on uh, their level of injury and things like that. So so a whole new thing of trying to work out this basically born-again body because of not being able to walk, not be able to go to the bathroom that I used to, used to and relationships and things like that had all changed. So my, my, my whole mentality had to change. And obviously, I had to try and think positive uh, to get through that. And, and that was quite hard sometimes. And it was around November that year that I actually got into the housing commission house that I was in. It was a two-bedroom unit. So I moved in with a friends, I guess you could call it. I ended up being an ass. But so I had a few sort of friends still hung around me. I was lucky and my little sister and Marie um, sort of stuck around me as well, which was really awesome. So he moved in with me and uh, yeah, on the first anniversary of my accident, he was supposed to go away on holidays and stuff. And I went out to a pub and all shit, I can't do this anymore. Went home, I took a massive overdose of over 300 pills, put into life support and coma for probably close enough to four weeks. Frank's in the hospital and uh, I was, things were happening at the hospital, spinning out and all sort of stuff and hallucinating and trying to escape from the hospital when I was uh, at some stage. And um, so the next time I sort of woke up, I woke up on a mattress on the floor in a psychiatric unit at Mont Park. So coming to terms where I was and trying to work out was coming off this uh, the medication that put me on and obviously the medication that I tried to kill myself with. So I woke up in the hospital recall how long I was in there. It was probably, a, I'd say probably a good two weeks at least. So they let me out and I moved back into the unit where I was. I don't think the neighbours really liked me that much. So I ended up talking to mum and I moved up to Mafra. And what changed then was obviously the setting certainly helped. And mum's attitude was always caring. She was an always empathetic person. So they decked out what I needed to be decked out there and uh, obviously made me fully welcome with the disability and learning and all sorts of stuff. And so I was, was travelling from uh, Mafra down to the Austin Hospital, so to Heidelberg, catching the train. And it's a bloody long trip, I tell you. So, and they were doing a, um, a netball clinic there in wheelchairs. And this is where my life changed for sport. So I saw this sport and I'm thinking, yeah, wheelchair netball. I don't know about the skirt, but I'll, I like the game. So um, <laughs> not with my hair. Really. So, I, mean, I didn't want it to shave every week. But, you know, aerodynamics. <laughs> and, um, so I, I was watching the sport. Oh, yeah, I want to give this a crack. So I jumped to a, into another chair and uh, pretty much took to it straight away. And that started my life in sport. So Because I, I didn't know what was around for people with disabilities. And back then, years and years ago, there wasn't a great outreach to say, hey, this, 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 and this. And there definitely wasn't much psychology out out of hospital as well to help you transition, I guess. And so getting into wheelchair netball was playing it next to the zoo at Royal Park in Melbourne. So I used to catch a train down from Mafra to play on a Saturday morning. And sometimes I'd go on the Friday 
Representative Victoria and that, and we went up to a few other states and uh, played wheelchair netball, which was awesome. So I met my first wife through wheelchair netball, and she was born with spina bifida, and uh, we didn't last too long, sadly, but uh, that's that's life, things happen. I was introduced to wheelchair basketball probably about three or four years after finding uh, wheelchair netball, and I thought, ah, this is an awesome sport, and it's a lot more physical contact and fast and stuff like that, and... Uh, I was lucky enough to start getting into the Victorian team virtually straight away. So we're traveling all around Australia and uh, playing other, obviously, states that have already got their wheelchair teams and in the nationals. So that was awesome. So that was a great stepping stone, wheelchair netball to wheelchair basketball and uh, picked up a tennis racket here and there and played uh, wheelchair. Used to play the wheelchair open and put some trophies sitting over there from winning some Australian Opens in different divisions. Uh, that's my favorite one there. So uh, that's the actual... Collingwood Wheelchair AFL Trophy uh, that we won in 2018. So wheelchair basketball was perfect for me for what I needed mentally and uh, as obviously physically and stuff as well. So I've been lucky enough to play represent Australia in wheelchair basketball and also wheelchair tennis and travel past the world and winning medals, not winning medals, just having an awesome time. So it was great for that mental side of it and physical side of it. But I was always having trouble still adapting to the obviously the wheelchair and going through stuff. The accident changed my life for a better thing. If I, had, I guess if I had a time machine to go change my life, people say, oh, yeah, would you would you rather walk? Obviously, I'd love to walk, but I think I've done a lot of greater things since being in a wheelchair than I probably would have done before my accident. And, uh, helping people and give sharing my life experiences and working with youth offenders and stuff now that I've done for quite some times and driving education and has certainly been, I guess, a gift to be able to give back and uh, especially with the driver stuff. And uh, sadly, my mum, my mum passed away. She was a distracted driver. And my seven-year-old nephew here, he's a help, his nephew I helped raise for the first three years of his life. He got off a school bus outside his mum's place and he got hit by a distracted driver in unroadworthy car, he got taken to the Royal Children's Hospital and sadly died in front of us. And my stepfather, Mum has been married three times, so my last stepfather, uh, who was uh, he was a beautiful person. Sadly, he took his life not long after mum's death because he just couldn't handle it. The depressional side, he went through that and alcoholism and stuff like that. Certainly, uh, sadly, uh, succumbed to him. So, and losing the other people on the road, I've lost very close friends on the due to road trauma and other uh, suicides. So, I'm gonna. There's been quite a lot of little steps along the way that I felt bug your little hole but the accident itself overall has been a massive positive change for you I wanted to delve a little bit deeper around when you were on the train on the way to the hospital um, and you came across the wheelchair netball courts what was going through your head for you to be brave enough to say hey I'm going to give that a go because I I can only assume that it takes a lot of courage to go from being a mobile person to suddenly accepting that you're in a wheelchair and still adjusting to being in a wheelchair to suddenly going, you know what, mm. I'm just going to go and play netball. <laughs> I guess seeing the sport and thought, yeah, these are people just like me now, or I'm just like them, whichever. And because there was a wheelchair clinic at the hospital and you had staff saying, hey, do you want to try this? And encouraging people to try 
from things to give them another outlet, be it sport, recreation or anything. So I'd always gone through high school and outlets and stuff to try just as mad as many sports as I could. And, and I just loved that sort of adrenaline type of thing. I thought, well, yeah, I can push down a hill and get take my hands off the wheel, close my eyes and hope for the best. But that's not the adrenaline that I want. So a bit more controlled. So what being in the courtyard at the Austin Hospital and you got other OTs and physios and stuff say, hey, Brendan, do you want to have a try at this? And I said, yeah, I do, I do. So as soon as I got into the sports chair that I was in, I was just wanted to zip off and I was going up and down the side of the court trying to you know, get balance and work out the mechanics of going faster and turning in the chair and stuff and working out the netball rules as soon as you grab the ball, we've got to stop. And, and the encouragement that the physios and the OTs and the other players welcome a new player or a new person onto the into the field of the court, so to speak, is just fantastic. It's like, yeah, good on you and all sorts of stuff. And I love that sport is one of your coping mechanisms and uh, it's necessary for your mental state as well, but it's your sense of humour. You have such a great sense yeah. of humour and, and just perspective on, hey, you're not taking yourself too seriously. I'm working on, I'm working on a comedy show called Stand Up With A Thud. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really bad. I'll be going, oh, Brendan, the same old jokes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it works. It's a new crowd. New crowd. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I am working on a comedy show. I'm writing a book as well. So my, the book's called My Life Stripped Bear. And Let's kind of go back to the courage that you had to go out there and just go, yeah, I'm going to get in amongst it. And then the next steps from there, like you went ahead and tried out netball, basketball, tennis. Hmm. Talk about all those trophies that you got behind you. Especially the Collingwood. Uh, you're a Collingwood fan? I'm in Sydney, yeah, right. so I'm not really a footy fan because I feel like I'm not going to get a lot of a lot of fans from that one. <laughs> uh, what I say, because my, my partner's Carlton uh, and she obviously, for anyone from Carlton hates Collingwood, so I just say, think it is the wheelchair side <laughs> rather than the Agrabod teams. I said, and most people say, no, it's still Collingwood. So <laughs> uh, regardless. So the, this one here was the, um, this just a photo I took of uh, the Premiership Cup. That was uh, Robert Rose Cup 2018. Uh, that was the inaugural season of the wheelchair AFL. So we have five AFL teams, Collingwood, Hawthorne, Essendon, Richmond, St Kilda. 70 to 80 who want to play, but we've got 50 that are actually registered to play this coming Sunday. Beat Richmond by 60 points in the grand final. So it was that was an awesome uh, day for everyone. And we had about 400 people there for a crowd. We had Eddie Maguire, other CEOs there from the other teams and stuff like that. So just to have uh, everybody from the AFL take a hold and grasp it and get on with it uh, and look at this as a, a good sport. From trying to get other players from eight players that I got into the teams uh, as a nationals to uh, to help get to where it is today. It's been like a, a child, watching a child grow in ways for me. So to see the teams grow and have to get other players come in with the same problems that I went through when I first had my accident to encourage these players to um, take a part of this team and take a part of this sport and Molder community, it actually became a, a really good tight community for people to talk to uh, about their disability, help other people, uh, mental health and all sorts of stuff. So, so it's sort of grown massively that obviously the AFL and um, other disability sport and recreation, Robert Rose, have taken that from the start and just blown it 
to where we need to go and it's still growing now. I think Sydney's getting a couple of teams uh, playing at the moment too, practicing up there. I've been seen this year, so which is really good. So that's the Robert Rose one. Um, this is probably my one of the best ones I've got was the uh, best defensive player in 2000 uh, for Danny Non Rangers in the National League. So uh, we won a National League in that year after trying for 70, 70, 70 years. And this is probably my, whoops, I say this is my dear, dearest, fairest. This is, I got to the Collingwood's Copeland Trophy last year and got Collingwood's best and fairest uh, presented me on top of the stage with the other Copeland Trophy winners at Collingwood. And so that was really good to get the uh, best and fairest last year. Wearing the fantastic Collingwood jumper and stuff like that is a, a godsend to me. Drawing over Collingwood my whole life. So uh, as a captain to get that has been fantastic. There's too many trophies and stuff to go through, but there's a lot of stuff from um, medal, gold medals and silver medals from Japan and uh, Korea and the UK, where I played basketball for Australia. Trophy as well for Australian Open as well. and see Because I was only playing tennis once a year to break up my basketball, so I thought, yeah, I'll give the Australian Open a crack. So I was just lucky enough to, I guess, to have that talent to do that sort that of thing. That is so impressive, your collection of everything that you threw yourself at post the accident yeah. and look how far you've come so this all took place what in your late 20s early 30s how long did your sport well, career last i know it's still happening you're still a prominent figure in the sporting space yeah well i've sort of stopped at the moment i would definitely be playing if i didn't get diagnosed with cancer this year and this year would have been still going if covid didn't so last year we finished uh, in the grand final we got into another grand final sadly beat richmond beat us this time so Still training and coaching everybody. I got up wheelchair cricket going for some people. So that was another outlet. Just the, I guess, the social and funny atmosphere wheelchair cricket can have. And we all yell now, you're all going home in the back of a divvy van. Someone yells out, not unless there's a ramp, (laughs) sort of thing. um, And it was great fun just to... um, I guess, more social and friendly and happy having a muck around. And uh, if you didn't have your cricket bat, one of the amputees would take off his leg and use that as a cricket bat. So, <laughs> Bless. Yeah, what you, oh, yeah, that's good sport. Yeah, that is good sport. But he wouldn't share his leg around. Bring your own bat. I had to earn mine. So <laughs> uh, at least we had stumps. Uh, we could just use his legs as well. So, you know. <laughs> But, yeah, sport is uh, it's still a big part of my life. So being able to coach all the teams and help other team members and stuff like that from all the other teams was if I wasn't out of sport playing, be coaching and helping get other players in the sport. And that's what I love, just getting other people out of their comfort zone to get the best out of them to do that sort of thing. And now with uh, getting diagnosed with cancer in February, and which was a massive, massive thing. So I got diagnosed early February that I have this rare uh, aggressive cancer in, was in my urethra and bladder and uh, the first first Friday of March, I uh, had a 13-plus-hour operation and there was over seven litres of blood and plasma put through me through that operation and after my operation. And uh, apparently my partner said I was very close to not being here through that operation and stuff as well. So they had to cut my bladder, my prostate, bits and pieces out to get all the cancer out. And sadly, they didn't get all of it. They got about 96% of it. Now I've been, the last six months I've been having chemo and uh, going through that uh, every week. So um, I've just had a PET scan today. Uh, it's my six month of having chemo. What I know with the cancer and stuff I have is it's probably not going to 
change much. What I got told at the start with my cancer was sadly time limits and chemo was only there to prolong uh, my life basically. And uh, yes, yeah, so I've got a lovely partner who's helped me. Beautiful balloon. You guys carrots. Yeah. You we can. did. Being a male, like my cancer started last year, uh, obviously, and I was, there was a lot of blood and everything that was coming out of my body that me being a typical male, yeah, no, it's, it's still attached, you know, it's only a flesh wound, it's fine. But obviously it wasn't. And it wasn't until uh, Natalie and I told Natalie about it and all the blood and blood clots and all sorts of stuff, she said, no, you need to get this looked at. And that's when I found out that I had cancer and uh, it's brought us closer. Uh, she's, uh, yeah, she's amazing and I've come into her life at the right time and stuff as well. So it's been perfect for us. And obviously, sadly, the cancer's come into that and um, not sort of knowing where that's going with the cancer at the moment. Uh, we know where we're going. We're, uh, we're not stopping anywhere. So um, I've got a 16-year-old daughter also. She went through cancer two years ago and she's in remission now as well, thank goodness. And uh, so she's battling my stuff as well, apart from it as her stuff as a teenager and other things as well. Also last year, I found my dad on the floor. He'd been on the floor for about four days. Um, when I found him, um, he probably only had about 24 hours to live. If he had been out there for 24 hours, I reckon he probably would have been here. You can tell how long he'd been on the ground because of the, all the wounds he had, like the grazes and stuff on his arms and hips and stuff. He's been trying to crawl back somewhere. Dad had fallen down in the hallway after having a shower. He had a massive stroke and he lost his whole right side. And you could tell that when the ambulance guys pulled him out on the blue tarp stretcher thing, you could see the wounds had started to try and heal over with all the hair and grit and dirt into it. And he looked really, really bad. So um, so he's now in uh, aged care and he needs uh, support. So he's lost his whole right side. And even though the torment I had with Dad, we became friends again while I was in Pentridge. Our, uh, our relationship just actually blossomed and, uh, you know, we love each other. And, you know, it's life is, I believe life is about forgiveness and getting on with life because if you, you keep that hatred in and that anger in and it just deteriorates you more as a person, I think. And I don't think you can learn to like and love others properly so forgiveness is a key for me and just being rational to people and understanding how people we all different uh, even like the worst criminals and murderers and everything there, there's problems there and that's why they they do things and i'm not saying people should forgive other people for that that's up to their choice but my my thing is about forgiving people and learning to accept uh they have faults i have faults we all have them uh, and moving on and hopefully understanding um, theirs and mine and helping others with that as well. Yeah, mm. that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? It's, um, it's yeah. summed it up so beautifully. I think it's exactly not just forgiving others, it's forgiving yourself as well. Yes. You know, with you being in a wheelchair, it's made it interesting is that a lot of people, especially young people who've found themselves now in a wheelchair, having been mobile and then now being challenged in that area they struggle with accepting it and then so coming to the second phase of you know receiving the news of getting cancer as well a really aggressive cancer how do you maintain that level of positivity comedy <laughs> and beneath all that comedy how much of it is something that is i guess festering in you 
Yeah, a, a comedy for me, and look, Robin Williams is a perfect example how much comedy his wall was uh, that we didn't know how deeply traumatised he was as a person. It took his own life. And I guess throughout my life, I've had quite a few suicide attempts in my life that I, I didn't want to be at, even way before my accident. There's getting through those coping mechanisms and finding, uh, I guess, what is positive, what is your light. Uh, in that particular point to get out of those things. And, uh, and one thing I do tell the people is don't compare your life with mine. Your life is your life and mine is mine. So when I talk about my life to you and the listeners listening is how I how you hear my life and how you feel my words is different how I've lived them. Same as if you tell me your life and I'm not going to get everything that you feel. So where you are in that moment, whether it's darkness or lightness, you know, Joe Blow or Jewel Blow down in a third world country, we all get told to say, yes, what about this person over there? But I think when we're in that dark zone with ourselves, it's very hard to think that, yes, it's sad, but right here, right now is what I need to deal with to be able to create out of that. And you look at within yourself at this particular point and say, hey, I need to fix me. Now, we've got to learn to accept and breathe each other uh, as an individual for us to like and love other people and stuff. And um, that's what I've learned to, um, I guess, trying to accept and breathe different parts of my life to move on from it and finding a different positiveness to get out there. And most of my stuff that I, I guess I create positive vibes is to help other people and share my story because uh, I virtually relive it every time I, I talk about it. I do a lot of talks with it. So I'm naturally going through like a, a grieving thing in my head when I'm talking. I get emotional with it, but I use that emotion in my talks to help other people feel what I'm feeling as well. So obviously the cancer and stuff is a, is a different kettle of fish of wanting to die or take my life as a youngster. Uh, to now, that's now maybe taking out of my own hands. Something else is going to take my life or maybe taking my life. So uh, it's a different ball game to all together in my head. So I like a lot. There's been times where I've felt that bad through having chemo and the drugs that go with us that I wanted, just want the cancer just to hurry up and take me. But with the steroids and stuff, you go through, it's a heckle and joy type of thing. It's just massive. It, affects me really bad and all I just want to curl up and have silence and darkness within myself and it gets so tormented in your head because you, you're fighting one thing that's giving you fatigue and you're fighting another thing that's giving you adrenaline and they're just colliding and the, obviously the emotions of having cancer and what, you, what I know of my cancer and stuff is, is just going clyde, clyde, clyde and when you're in that real hard part of the, the first round with the steroids and stuff, that's when you start getting into a darkness type of thing. And there were stages where I thought, shit, I just want this to envelop me and take me away because I just can't stand the pain. And, and it's not just myself. Seeing others feel what I'm going through is hard to say, hey, I don't want you to go through this, what I'm going through as well. And um, that is a hard part to sort of comprehend it as well and go through and uh, quality of life. You know, it's uh, chemo is quite debilitating. So when you mentioned that you don't want other people to feel the pain that you're going through, and that's something that you feel is a bit of a, a challenge for you to kind of work through mm -hmm. from an emotional standpoint, how do you want people to empathise with you? 
And I'm, I'm asking this because there's going to be a lot of people out there that will have someone who's been touched by cancer or is going through something similar to yourself, whether it's aggressive or any type of cancer. Do you want sympathy? How do you want people to respond to you and respect your boundaries and be there for you in the way that you feel comfortable? And I know everyone's different, but in your, in your case, how do you want people to, to receive your news? Yeah. I do little video things every week when I'm having chemo and stuff like that. And I do talk about what I'm going through, not to a full extent and probably not even to the extent that I've talked to you with you now. But what I say to people is, People don't know how to express themselves to somebody who's going through cancer or other other traumatic experiences and they don't know how to speak. So, And if you don't know how to speak, what I say to people is give them a thumbs up, give them a heart, give them a like, let them know that you're there. You don't have to actually physically call them up or face-to-face and stuff because, as I said, it's, sometimes it's hard for people to, how do I talk to Brendan about his cancer and what's going on? I don't know how to respond to that. Or when somebody passes away, uh, and they're close to them or whatever. And, uh, we always say, oh, send your wishes, condolences on stuff. But there's, how do we go to a deeper side of that? We don't, some, a lot of people don't know how to go to that deeper side. And what I feel is someone give me, seeing that thumbs up or that heart on Facebook or Instagram or wherever gives me light from somebody who knows that I know who cares, who's listening, who is there for me in that aspect. That person may not be able to know how to uh, approach me and that sort of thing. Uh, give them a call if you can or a video. It's, there are down times, obviously, we get, and I don't want people not to care or empathise with you. As much as I sometimes say to myself, I don't want anybody knowing about this and that, I think we all want to feel that feelings from somebody else that they are listening um, because we have nobody, we have nothing that makes us worse, I feel. So even that getting that one heart or one like, we know we're getting something back. Uh, I think we all need to feel that. So let them know you're there in some sort of way. It may be voice, not maybe face, uh, but find that way to get, get to that person if you can. Great. Mm. Thank you. And I think a lot of people would probably take that advice as well. Now, what's next for you? So you are... You are a guest speaker in a lot of inspirational talks. You know, you're still a heavy member in um, the sporting space. You're writing a book. You're doing a comedy show. Yeah. yeah. My wife's a comedy show half the time, so. Uh, <laughs> it hasn't slowed you down at all. You've still, got a, you've still had a massive year considering chemo and all the treatments that you're going uh, through. <laughs> I guess with COVID as well, I was lucky. Well, in a way, lucky is probably not a good word. When I got my cancer, I had my operation, I've come out to COVID with the chemo and everything. I was virtually sleeping most of the time anyway, so I couldn't do anything. And I didn't have the physical strength and the mental strength to do a lot. So, uh, and obviously new body image, losing hair, and people say I rock the ball look, but I'm happy with that. But You really do. Uh, I, <laughs> thank you. But even the new, there's a new body image, like I had over 50 staples going from my belly button downwards. So like things cut out of me also so I had to be quite widely opened, I guess. So when I first had my accident, I had a, a leg bag to urinate in. So an indwelling catheter most of the time. And now I don't have a bladder. I have uh, this 
ilio conduit, I think it's called, which is a bag on my right side of my stomach now where the urine goes into. So that's another body image thing I've got to try and get through. I'm strutting over that as well. It took me years to try and get used to the leg bag and I still hated it. Now I've got this massive scar going on my stomach. I know my partner's fine and stuff like that, really, but it's obviously I've got to deal with it up here and it's only been since March uh, doing that and there's there's other parts of me I've got a, a deal with as well, which is the male side of it and stuff as well. So when you first have your accident as a spinal, you you, you feel like you, you lost half your manhood with obviously sexuality and you know, people say to you, can you have sex? And naturally, yes, we can. Anybody can have sex because it's what you think your sexual stuff is. And I'm quite open about talking about sexual stuff. Can I maintain an erection no can i ejaculate as a normal person no so most people's question when they ask can you have sex is about can you have sexual intercourse naturally can you ejaculate naturally and most people spinal injuries and stuff no uh, but what is sex to that person uh, you could have a high functioning quadriplegic who can only blink their eyes and, and touch and kisses is that sexual experience to that person. It's not just about intercourse and ejaculating and stuff. So I think sex is a lot more than just 30 seconds. <laughs> so, uh, then have a cigarette later. So no harm. <laughs> but it's all about obviously touch and feelings with another one. It's, it's more than just intercourse. And uh, I think people who just think sex is intercourse and things like that really need to look at what sex is. They may get more sexual pleasure, who knows, but sex is what that person perceives what sex is. As I said, it could be touch. It could be you know, a person who could just blink their eyelids. It's about being kissed or touched or uh, talked to in a, in, a, in a way. So it sort of frustrates me when people talk about, oh, uh, sex with disabilities or so for other people or can you have sex and I would prefer to say hey this is what I can and can't do and this is what I put on when I have to go through like dating sites and stuff like that it's hard to have a one night stand because I can't stand up for starters but so <laughs> I don't know but trying to explain to a, I guess a potential partner be it one night stand or second night stand, whatever, is you've got to go through all that sort of thing and do questions. They ask questions, can I, can you do this? Can you do that? And as soon as you go through some of it, some of them block you straight away because you can't do this. You describe your life and the way you are in such a, such a way that lets me believe that you are incredibly secure and comfortable with all the changes that have taken place and all the emotional, you know, sort of roller coaster that you've been on, but you are very comfortable with who you are. And so you own it. You are, you've owned every aspect of your injuries, your, you know, changes, the bags that you've had to, the staples, everything that you've kind of gone through, you know who you are yeah. and you're not going to waver in terms of who you'll meet. So your partner is very mm -hmm. lucky and you're very lucky to have her to know that you guys have found oh. each other and you've been absolutely just upfront from the get go and, you love each other for who you are. Yeah, definitely. As I said, she's an ICU nurse, so she's my hero too. So, yeah, we, we just bounce off each other. We're fantastic. So, Well, I'm so happy for you and I'm really grateful to have a conversation with you to learn a bit more about you and what you've gone through. You have lived such a tremendous life and honestly, that positivity, I think there are people out there that really need to, to understand and get that perspective that it's not always bad. I think... As I say to everybody, it's finding what is your 
What is your gift? Uh, mine is talking. Stopping me is the hardest thing. So, but uh, as I say to the young offenders and stuff that I speak to, find something that gives you passion. Not stealing cars, but finding something else that gives you passion. It, it could be sport. It could be drawing. It could be writing. It could be painting. So I had a little tiny little spark just after my accident that keep me going and that flame has built up and built up. Sure, we have downtime still, but if we keep on an emo- a straight emotional, I don't think we have... Uh, a proper life so we all need to bounce up and down in different ways not too heavily obviously so we need to be able to get out of them quite quickly and understand why we're in them and confront them and hopefully move on to better things in life yeah that's well said thank you i've really loved getting to know you you are quite a remarkable man i'm just me you are so driven there is something about you that i feel even like you haven't really stopped to i mean i know you've had dark moments where you've really had to kind of hold back and be with yourself but you don't seem like you've really let anything get you down you've soldiered on you've continued to to strive at the start of when i first got told i had cancer they said uh, without chemo i'll have four to six months to live with chemo i have uh, 12 to 18 months to live and chemo was there to prolong my life and stuff so i had a three-month scan uh, three months ago and everything was stable, probably just a tiny bit of growth what I uh, worked out. Um, so obviously this six-month period is uh, where I'll know from there. And obviously the time limits and stuff that you get put in your head by the doctors, it just fucks me. I had Natalie here uh, when I found out, when the doctors told me on the phone because I asked her questions, I was like, okay, what are the time limits? And then having to wait three months to get the scan and figure out what's what then actually tell my daughter the full story because I told her she knew I had cancer, but she didn't know the extent of it. Um, and the reasons I didn't tell her that was because I needed to know at the scan level what was going on so to back the doctor's stories up so I could say, hey, this is what it is, not what it could be or what it may be. I'd rather give her definite answers. And uh, she totally understood that, obviously. And um, How's the, um, the marijuana that you're having? How is that helping you in terms of... Well, pretty trippy. <laughs> so I've only had, a, I've had it uh, for about a month now and it's fantastic. Oh, I was getting so much leg spasm and pain in my stomach. It certainly helped. I had a ratatouille moment the first time I, um, I, t- I took it. So anybody who knows ratatouille and seen the film where the, the critic, the hard-ass critic is sitting there waiting for his meal and he gets the ratatouille meal and as soon as he tastes it, he drops his spoon and goes back to childhood. Obviously, it's giving you pain relief, which is great, but helps with the yeah. appetite, helps you sleep. It doesn't... The hasn't really gone down from having chemo and stuff like that. I've been lucky with that. So that goes with that series of photos I've put That's about beautiful. empowering myself to, yeah. to this one, uh, which I really, really love. Um, just the colours that are... Uh, focusing on different emotions and um, that sort of thing. So it's hard to get the focus on. So No, it looks yeah. beautiful. I can definitely see it. Yeah, please send me um, the copies of your yeah. your stripped bear yeah. pictures. Um, I'll definitely use yeah. it as a for the for the podcast itself. But, oh, my God, we're going to be out of time because it's going to stop recording soon. I think I've only got us in for an oh, hour 15. Yeah. Um, look, thank you so much. You are an absolute champion. I've absolutely loved speaking to you and getting to know you. Oh, I love talking about my life and sharing the experiences. And the whole idea to do that is to hopefully 
help somebody who may just click on one little thing to help their life move on to something better. You know, there's always somebody else who will listen. Our voices are running away from somebody else's caring heart. And we just need that little bit of strength sometimes, extra strength sometimes to reach out to that person who's waiting. Uh, and it could be Lifeline Kids Helpline, uh, uh, Beyond Blue, Black Dog Institute, Headspace. Uh, there's always somebody else who's listening. As I said, there's just that little bit of extra uh, strength that we need to bring out of each other to grab hold of something, to uh, grab that light a bit more, to pull, us, pull each other out. So, yeah. Your words are so impactful, but you are such a larrikin. <laughs> this was hosted by my mum, Linda Risoglu. Stay tuned for next week's episode of People Are Amazing, the podcast.